Hey everyone, and welcome to Oscar Wilde, a podcast about film always counting down to next year's Oscars. I'm Sophia Simonello. And I'm Nick Rookrout. And on today's episode, we will be talking all about the 1975 Oscars, doing a deep dive into the five Best Picture nominees, which are One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, Barry Lyndon, Dog Day Afternoon, Jaws, and Nashville. Hot takes coming your way. Are you ready to talk about these movies? Once again, I think I was way more excited before I had actually seen all of them, (laughs) but I think we'll have a fun discussion because there's a lot to be said and the ceremony as a whole is cracked completely. I can't wait to talk about the ceremony and to potentially (laughs) rip your head off when you talk about some of the movies that I love that you didn't love so much. So. But before we get into the ceremony, we're going to talk about a little update on some terrible, terrible news about Tenant being delayed indefinitely. <laughs> it finally happened. It's just interesting because once Warner Brothers delayed Tenant, we saw other films start to follow suit. Disney removed Mulan and the French Dispatch from their calendars. And then we got that really silly Avatar announcement. They moved it again to the end of 2022, and it was already like six or seven years late. I just, I don't think we're ever going to get it. It's becoming kind of like the last Game of Thrones book, where we are just thinking, will this ever happen? There's no way they're just going to pump all these out after an eight-year delay between one and two. It's also just... In the pandemic, I can really take things like a day, a week at a time. I do not need to be thinking about Avatar 4 coming out. And I think, too, the possibility of the Oscars being a combined Oscars feels much more real, right? Having 2020 and 2021 together, now that we have all of these pushes and films moving out of the eligibility window, I'm thinking that this is becoming more inevitable. What do you think about that? Yeah, it's the recent push for a lot of movies is a little scary because the number of movies that are going to be out this fall is dwindling. So I don't know when they're going to make that decision. I know way back when we said that this probably wouldn't be a thing. And now I'm curious when they're going to decide if and when they do this. Yeah, and knowing the Academy too, it's hard because they're probably going to make some vague announcement that will get everyone up in arms on Twitter before they actually release anything official. So at this point, we don't know. We're just speculating. But I'm very curious to see when that decision happens and what that announcement looks like. It has been delayed in the past for like really specific reasons. I know with MLK's assassination, they canceled the telecast. So it's not like this is the first time this would ever have happened. But I think this is such a stressful time that maybe we will see it happen. So I'll gladly take what is left on the docket for 2020 and see what comes. Well, let's just leave 2020 behind. I think we're ready to do that and go back to 1975. Well, really 1976 when the telecast happened. So take us back to Monday, March 29th, 1976. It's crazy they were on a Monday. I guess I never realized that they used to be on weekdays. Yeah, I just reading about the early Oscars telecasts, they used to be on Tuesdays, and then they switched to Mondays, and they made the switch only in 1999 to telecast on Sundays, which seems way too recent. So the fact that it wasn't really new to be on a weekday. I don't know why there were so many people that didn't show up that were nominated. There really were. I was watching when I was looking through some of the speeches and things. I was watching Best Director and I just see Stanley Kubrick's picture and I just thought, what a king not going to the Oscars. (laughs) Very typical, I feel. Very sparsely attended. It also, I thought, was interesting that it aired the same night as the NCAA championship basketball game. Indiana beat Michigan. We love to see it. And Elliot Gold, when he announced the winner of Best Editing, he joked at the beginning and said, Indiana, 86 to 68, (laughs) because that was the score of the game. (laughs) 
This had happened a few times, but also it's funny to see that NBC and ABC were fighting over who was broadcasting the telecast. And this year was when it switched back to ABC and their contract now lasts through 2028. So we'll see if maybe it switches again. But to me, ABC had always been the home for the Oscars. Yeah, definitely. And going back to someone else not being there, I feel like you'll appreciate this. So Frank Pearson, who won for Best Original Screenplay for Dog Day Afternoon, wasn't there because he was actually filming A Star is Born with Barbara Streisand. Oh, I love that. So I think the big thing about these Oscars in particular was that we had a big five winner. One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest became the first film in 41 years since it happened one night to sweep five major categories. So these five major categories being Best Picture, Best Director, Best Actor, Best Actress, and then Best Adapted Screenplay in this case, Original Screenplay, could also apply for the big five. Mm -hmm. And it didn't happen again until 16 years later with The Silence of the Lambs. So thinking about these five nominees what does this group of movies I guess mean to you it your answer probably isn't going to be as loving as mine I would say but I want to hear what do you think about this group of films I think they all have an interesting collective of being anti-establishment I think the majority of it is male driven which is kind of what symbolizes the academy or what has for a long time and thankfully that's changing Mm mm-hmm There are some female performances in these movies, but they're obviously very supporting to me. We'll get there. But I think overall, they were just appealing to the masses in a way. How do you feel about the group? So these five films to me are just incredibly important. They're very indicative of the 70s, of what was going on in America politically. And we have some of the greatest directors all at the peak of their powers making masterpieces which we can discuss further what we think of that but looking at this collection of films and we discussed this a little bit on our last episode on the popular oscars once we move to the 80s we focus more on what is going to be appealing to audiences and what's going to make money and what those blockbusters are going to be and i think in the 70s especially when we look at this group of films to me these directors they're trying to make in most cases the next great american film And I think that that is just really fascinating to think about, especially when you think about Oscar history. I think Spielberg is a good reference point for this because I don't really think of Jaws as a 70s movie, but I think that's because I think of Spielberg as more of an 80s director because he came out with so many classics, but he didn't win until later on. But with Spielberg being 27, he was so young. I think he was this transition into a new class of filmmaking and he wanted to bring the audiences and Jaws up to this point was the most profitable Hollywood movie to date even more than The Godfather, The Sound of Music, and Gone with the Wind. So I think this was a turning point. Mm -hmm. One, I'm 27 and what am I doing with my life? (laughs) (laughs) Because that is wild that he made Jaws that young. And that it was so successful. And we'll talk about Jaws as a blockbuster once we get down to Jaws. But I I like what you're saying. I think that is true that Spielberg is this new guy coming in to this group of older heavy hitters. Kubrick, Lumet, Foreman, Altman, you know. So in the fact that his movie made, no pun intended, such a splash, it's really cool. So let's get into... The Big Five winner first. We'll just start at the top with One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Directed by Milos Forman. So general IMDb summary here. A criminal pleads insanity and is admitted to a mental institution where he rebels against the oppressive nurse and rallies up the scared patients. As we said before, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest won the Big Five and had nine nominations total. I know we'll get into our ranking later, but I really think this was the right win. I <laughs> I just gave the hardest eye roll ever. <laughs> what do you love about it? I think it appeals to everything a Best Picture Oscar tries to do, which is appeal to audiences, stay fun, and it has great performances by both Louise Fletcher and Jack Nicholson and everybody else. I mean, Danny DeVito. Yeah, like, totally forgot that he was in it. He's infuriating, but 
again, bringing it back to like anti-institution, I think the symbolism is great where Jack Nicholson comes in, he's faking being insane to get out of working at this work farm prison and Mm -hmm. he can't escape. But then by the end, I mean, spoilers were, you're going to hear spoilers. You have the chief who finally escapes and kills Nicholson's character to prevent him from being imprisoned in this insane asylum forever too. So I think that is just telling and inspiring in an odd sort of way. I really like too how it grapples with the dichotomy between order and chaos. I really like it and I think they do a really good job here of exploring that. I do think that for me of the ones of the nominees, this has had the lowest impact on film broadly compared to the others. I think that the influences of Nashville, Dog Day, Jaws, and Barry Lyndon are greater than One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, even though I think it is a great film with great performances and the fact that it was adapted from the book that was a staple of counterculture. I think that those things are important, but when I look at the group of films, I find the other four to be far more influential on American filmmaking. I guess I agree with that. And it's much more performance and you're inside the mental institution the whole time and nothing like crazy is done with the camera or anything. I think it's interesting that Michael Douglas was a producer on this and his dad, Kirk, was the one who tried to adapt this into a Broadway screenplay. Yeah. They had been trying to make it for years, and it just hadn't come to fruition. So Ken Kessie, who wrote the novel, was pissed that he wasn't mentioned at the telecast because this film did so well. Yeah, he was so mad. He said, I'd like to have subpoenas in some of those award envelopes. He was so hurt that he wasn't mentioned during the show. Wow. Right? Yeah. I mean, I guess I would be mad, too, if I wrote this book that ended up turning into this big movie and giving everyone Oscars. Mm -hmm. Especially for screenplay. Like, why was he not mentioned? That was the source material. That's so weird. And then just in production, everybody associated with the film lived in the hospital for 10 to 12 hours a day for three months during 1975. That would just drive me to some sort of insanity. So I think maybe that's how everyone was so believable. I think I also just struggle with films and TV shows that take place in mental institutions. I always have. I've, I find them really difficult to watch and depressing. This one, and this is going to be a shocker for you, was the toughest sit for me of the five. Not even close, but that's fine. Okay, so we went over how it won the big five. Since we're going to do our best picture rankings at the end later, if you could give this movie one Oscar what would it be for you? It'd probably be screenplay for me. I think actress comes close. There's another fun, I just have all these facts from the telecast, but Ellen Burstein, who won the previous year's Best Actress, went on TV and asked the Academy members not to vote for Best Actress to protest the lack of good roles for women. I feel like this telecast is a good representation of where we are today, too. But Louise was so mad at this asking like why did she have to do this the year that she was up and not the year that Ellen herself was up for the award Mm, that is interesting did you feel like there was category fraud here with Louise or no on this great website screen time central you can look up the winners and nominees for each category and see how much screen time they had in the film Mm -hmm. and Louise Fletcher has the second lowest amount of screen time at 22 minutes and 37 seconds, which when you think about a movie like One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, which is over two hours, that is not a lot of screen time. So she definitely Mm -hmm. packs a punch. Who would you give your Oscar to? So mine was actually Best Actress for Louise Fletcher, even though it could be category fraud. Nurse Ratched is one of the all-time iconic villains, and her performance, I think, is just outstanding here. And 
her character to me is the most interesting. So I first watched this movie when I was way too young. I think I was probably 10 or 11 and couldn't really understand it in the way that I was supposed to. And watching it now for the first time since I was, no, I know it sounds like I'm being harder on it, but these films I think to me are all masterpieces, but her character I found much more complex than I was expecting. It was really interesting seeing the play back and forth between her and Jack Nicholson as this these symbols right of order and chaos. I really enjoyed that. So I would give it to her. How do you not feel the suspense in that relationship? You say that this movie was the hardest watch for you. But I feel like once that dynamic was introduced... I wanted to see where it went and I wanted to see where it concluded because I knew there was going to be some huge impact and I was just waiting for that to happen. I think that the type of films that you like, the pacing style that you like is just different than mine. And I think that unfortunately for this film, it was competing against the ideal of what I find in film, which are the Barry Lyndons and the Nashvilles, which to you, I think is the opposite, which is, this is why this is such an interesting discussion, (laughs) but I like the, I like the slow burners. Mm -hmm. I do. I was riveted, but this one to me was more standard Oscar fair. Right. It's a great, great movie, but it's more standard. There isn't as much interesting stuff in there that I can really sink my teeth into. That's fair. It's still like five stars, though. I'm not saying it's like a B. It's still an A, right? Right. One last little note, because I do think Louise Fletcher deserved it. When she when she gave her speech, she thanked her parents who are deaf. So she, part of her speech was in sign language. She said, I want to thank you for teaching me to have a dream. You're seeing my dream come true. And I think that's so touching. That's sweet. So one thing I was thinking about was, will the Big Five ever happen again? When we were preparing for this podcast episode, I was looking back at previous years and looking at what is the closest that we've gotten to the Big Five since. Besides Silence of the Lambs, of course, which won. There are three instances where films actually got four of the Big Five. Everyone just sit down while I'm reading these because it's a doozy. Forrest Gump won four of the five. Picture, director, actor, and adapted screenplay. American Beauty won four out of five. Picture, director, actor, original screenplay. And The King's Speech won four out of five picture, director, actor, and original screenplay. These films have aged horribly. Forrest has aged horribly? Yeah, I mean, Forrest, looking back at it now, not compared to American Beauty. American Beauty's the the real zinger here, but Forrest Gump isn't... It, if you watch it back now, it's a little like, uh, maybe not. Well, this was pretty soon after Silence of the Lambs anyway, but I love American Beauty. It's a shame... You love American Beauty? I mean, as a picture, yes. It's like the peak of cancel culture, which is just unfortunate. But I mean, in the King's speech was just so forgettable. So that's not surprising. I don't even think there were any actress performances in the King's speech that would have been... Was Helena? Helena Bonham Carter was in it, but she definitely was very much a supporting performance to Colin Firth. Whew, that movie. Do you think the Big Five will happen again? I think it will. It's becoming a lot tougher as more movies are put out there and you see a lot more coverage across the board Mm -hmm. between nominations i feel like it could happen at any time you just need the right movie Mm -hmm. and the right campaign for it how do you feel about it happening i think it's hard because i think if we look at the ones i just listed that had four out of five none of those had actress performances so in order for one to win the big five you have to have a meaty best actress role and unfortunately with a lot of these movies that are dominated by male performances that makes it more difficult i think people like spreading the wealth when they vote now the closest i remember thinking was back in 2018 people thought that a star is born might do it and this was very early in the award season it was before even golden globes but i remember people thinking about that of bradley cooper and lady gaga him getting director the screenplay picture of that happening of course it ended up winning none of those which is how it goes sometimes parasite won picture director and screenplay but the academy forgot that there were actors in that movie who were amazing so i think it's more challenging but i can see it happening again it'll be curious though which one it is for and if we end up liking it because the three that have done it are all great films You did have Annette Bedding nominated for American Beauty. So that, I think, was the closest of the bunch. I love Annette Bedding. 
I do not like American Beauty. <laughs> right. So next up is Barry Lyndon. And while I don't have a ton to say, I'm going to get all my words in while I can. So I'll do the introduction here. Directed by the iconic Stanley Kubrick. Happy birthday today on our day of recording. Oh. It's about an Irish rogue who wins the heart of a rich widow and assumes her dead husband's aristocratic position in 18th century England. It won five academy awards for cinematography art direction set decoration costume design music and scoring original song score and or adaptation it had seven nominations total you can start say whatever you would like to say about this movie thank you (laughs) so barry linden it is my favorite kubrick movie which he has amazing ones a hot take I don't think it's that hot. A lot of people like Barry Lyndon. I think 2001 is like definitely his masterpiece. How do you like 2001 and not Barry Lyndon? You know what? We're not talking about 2001. I'm going to talk about Barry Lyndon. (laughs) First, I'm going to save a lot of what I want to say about Barry Lyndon for when we do our Kubrick retrospective episode, which is going to be a lot of preparation and planning. I'm very excited for that, Mm -hmm. but it will be down the road. I love an opportunity to spend over three hours in an art museum with Stanley Kubrick. That's what this movie is to me. He revolutionized cinematography, lighting, period films here. If you like a standard period film, this one isn't that. This is far more complex and I'm having a hard time putting into words why this one is so comforting to me. I can put it on in the background and just fall right into it. I love it so much. So I do agree that it's way more influential over especially cinematography to the future of film since then. And I think of films like Mr. Turner or Portrait of a Lady on Fire where the cinematography largely revolves around paintings. And I think Kubrick, it's just beautiful. Mm -hmm. It's just the slow pacing and the sprawling story that is like hard for me to engage with it. I don't hate it. It's just a long-winded story that I don't really connect with. And I think it comes back to while it's you say it's not a period piece, it's still like a period drama. Those are not my favorite. And they're my favorite. So, I mean, so I think that's the biggest clash here. If you are a fan of Barry Lyndon or if after this conversation this is interesting to you, please check out the Criterion. It has so many features on it that you can learn so much about all of the work that Kubrick and his team put into this film that is just revolutionary. He had a file made up of thousands of drawings and paintings that were from the time period. Everything from parties to landscapes to people reviewing their bills. And he decided that he had to have this great historical understanding of the period to be able to recreate it. And I think a lot of times when we think of costume dramas, even ones that I really love, like Pride and Prejudice, It follows a very standard cookie cutter formula. And this is a sprawling epic and it is one of his greatest achievements. And I would say easily one of the greatest achievements in film that's ever Mm -hmm. been. I'm going to wait to talk about the cinematography until I ask you. I think this will be your answer, but if you could give Barry Lyndon one Oscar, what would you give it? Definitely cinematography. I think out of all the nominees for this year, it was by far the winner. For sure. For me, this is the best, best cinematography winner ever at the Oscars. Oh boy. (laughs) The reason why the cinematography of this film is so important is because Kubrick, in looking at all of these oil paintings from the period, he realized that he needed to use natural light and also use candlelight. And that was how he wanted the subjects in the film to be lit. And he decided that he had to capture candlelight. And what he did was he read about a lens that NASA used that was a very fast lens that allowed him to light his set with candlelight. His team reconstructed a camera so that he could use use these lenses from NASA. And I just love hearing these stories about how there were so many candles in the room and he shot on location. He didn't create any of these sets. So the candles would burn down really quickly and the oxygen would be drowning out of the room and people would be getting sleepy. And he was just very 
persistent that he needed to relight the candles and so he could have continuity and have this ambient light in the room and I think we glorify Kubrick for a lot of reasons and we talk about him being a perfectionist but this to me is just a landmark achievement in cinematography and we will resume our Barry conversation when we do our Kubrick episode. I mean I agree with you but also in the production he was given a budget of two and a half million and he extended that over two years maxing out at 11 million i don't see a problem no but he was problematic (laughs) i mean it made it back in box office but the fact that he went so over budget i don't know it's two sides to a coin he went so over budget but he did it for a reason and his craft is telling of that I think it's different now, too, because we have movies like Boyhood who take 10 years to make a movie, and you hear about that more and more now. But I think back then, they needed to whip these out, and they were given specific budgets with time frames, and he just totally said, no, I'm doing my own thing. He does this all <laughs> the time, though. He did that with 2001 and with The yeah. Shining. Okay, more for... Anyway, happy, happy birthday, birthday, Stanley. We love you. <laughs> The other question I had for you, how do you think today's Academy would receive Barry Lyndon? I feel like it would either be totally loved or completely disregarded in terms of nominations. But I think it's so deserving. It kind of is the tree of life of nominees, which deserves cinematography and probably would have been left out of everything else. I can't wait till you hear my other Kubrick takes on that episode of the other ones that I love. (laughs) I mean, I didn't totally tear apart Barry in my rating. It's still pretty high. We'll get to the rest of them. Okay. So next up, we have another favorite of mine, Dog Day Afternoon, directed by Sidney Lumet. And in Dog Day Afternoon, going off of an IMDb description again here, Dog Day Afternoon is about a man who robs a bank to pay for his lover's operation, which then turns into a hostage situation in a media circus. It won Best Original Screenplay and was nominated for six Oscars. I love Dog Day Afternoon. It is not my favorite Sidney Lumet, but again, hot take here. I think for me, Dog Day Afternoon is the New York movie. Apart from How to Be Single, which is also one of my favorite New York movies. I have not seen New York, New York from Scorsese. (laughs) I was expecting you to like roast me for not saying Good Time or Taxi Driver, one of these, and How to Be Single. I like it too. It's good. I, I really like Dog Day Afternoon. It takes you to a place that I didn't expect, and it becomes like you said, this media circus. And I didn't remember the ending from when I had seen it before. And it's just so heartbreaking because they got so close. And I think everybody is behind them. I think it's an engaging watch. It's not the hype of Inside Job or other heist movies that we have, but it's more of a slow burn, I feel. What I really like is how it feels almost more like a stage production, like a drama. And Lumet actually used a lot of stage actors in the production. And I love his blocking. I think it is really interesting and how he relies a lot on improv from his actors. And Pacino, actually, who's in the lead role in the film, he was going to take a break after Godfather Part Two and actually do some stage work. And then Lumet got him to do Dog Day Afternoon. So I love that he is this very popular actor back then coming right off of Godfather and Godfather Part Two, And he steals the show, but I love the way that you can see him collaborating with these other stage actors that are in the film. As I was watching it again this time, you can see really interesting choices that Pacino and Lumet make. For example, one thing I really love is that when Pacino is having a conversation with his mom, Lumet told Pacino to completely improv the scene at the last minute, and he told the actress who plays Pacino's mom to completely follow the script. No matter what Pacino says, completely follow it. And what ends up happening is you actually can see their dynamic in an even more interesting and strong way because of these choices that he makes as a director of how to trust Pacino with scenes and to follow his instincts. I love that. Wow. Isn't that cool? It's funny. Lumet said in a New York Post interview that Al's very possibly a great actor, maybe one for the ages. I don't know. Which is interesting that he was so young at the time that this was his start and he had such a strong beginning. And now that we're here, we know he's had this illustrious career and he definitely is an actor for the ages. 
Yeah. What do you think is Al's best performance? I mean, I could easily say Godfather. I don't know. He has so many standouts. I think Scarface is a strong one. The Godfather, even The Irishman. I'm Godfather Part 2 all day. That's my favorite Pacino. But I love this one, too. I think this is great. Another interesting fact that I learned about Lumet, specifically with Dog Day Afternoon, that struck me was in the film, you'll notice that as the day goes on, the actors are so sweaty and the sweat looks so real. (laughs) And Lumet actually has said that when he's working on a movie and his characters are supposed to be sweaty, he doesn't let the makeup artist do the sweat. He actually does it himself. He has this specific cocktail of water and glycerin that he says makes a really good sweat and it stays on them throughout the scene so he doesn't have to worry about continuity all my lumet facts if you like him too i have this really great book that's called who the devil made it it's by peter bogdanovich and it's all these interviews with different directors over time big directors and film history and there's a really great lumet section in there so i think what i totally forgot about here but what dog day does really interesting is it's discussion of sexuality and gender too i think the description is a little confusing it says that it was based on the actual brooklyn bank robbery by a bisexual man who was seeking money to finance a sex change operation for his homosexual boyfriend and i think bisexual transgender and gay in the same conversation is a lot because i don't know at the time if they understood what all those things meant i think pacino Mm -hmm does a really good job he just kind of brings it up and i was like oh is he serious and that especially back in the 70s is so new and i think he did it really well and the other thing is the fact that chris was nominated as supporting actor for his performance is shocking i agree i mean he's great in the film it's not that it's just that type of role back then that that was recognized so i think the exposure for this discussion of sexuality is great i don't really know if it went anywhere at the time but i think it was important to understand these people and their relationships and that it wasn't so cut and dry the fact that the cops make fun of chris as the the wife and the fact that they do call him Mm -hmm. the wife and they show him in the wedding dress is a little rough now Mm -hmm. i mean i don't expect any different from any kind of group of cis white straight men Mm -hmm. so how do you think the academy i guess thinking about back then how it played and you know chris sarandon did get a nomination and this movie was really well received by the academy how do you think today's academy would view it i think it would be even more lauded today i think this is the quintessential oscar movie appealing to the masses by telling a great story having these important conversations great performances great direction cinematography that feeling that you're like in the drama with everybody i think everything just plays super well what do you think I completely agree. I feel that while there are some things in it that feel very 70s to me, I think that today a story like this in the way that it was told would be received very well. And if you gave this movie one Oscar other than Best Picture, what would you give it? I'm very tempted to give it to director because of Sidney Lumet, but I'm saving that. Sorry for the spoiler. So Pacino all day. Best actor for sure. I think it is close, but I'll give it to director I think he totally deserves it here. Yeah. I think for me, the difference of why I didn't give Lumet director here is because I love Network so much. That's really the only answer. So next up, we have Jaws, which is perfect because we are in the summer. This is a great summer blockbuster directed by Steven Spielberg, of course, at the young age of 27. The IMDb description here When a killer shark unleashes chaos on a beach community, it's up to a local sheriff, a marine biologist, and an old seafarer to hunt the beast down. Jaws won Best Sound, Film Editing, and Music, Original Dramatic Score, and it was nominated for four Oscars. It won all of its nominations except for Best Picture. So this is interesting because the only other picture to do this was Traffic, which came out 25 years Mm -hmm. after Jaws, which is kind of another fact that is shocking to me that nothing else has done this. Yeah, almost a clean sweep except for Best Picture, right? That is interesting that other films haven't done that. I guess in a way it's not only because now big pictures have a lot of nominations. Mm -hmm. And we're seeing this trend of 
having 10 plus nominations mm-hmm. and that's just not gonna happen yeah exactly so still an interesting fact and then another fun fact is that the only crossover between best picture and best director this year was that spielberg was left out of director and fellini was put in for Amarcord, which one spielberg pitched a little fit when he did make <laughs> it which is too funny. It's like this 27-year-old white guy mad that Fellini beat him out. It's funny <laughs> to me. As any good millennial would do today, I'm sure. Mm-hmm. So Amarcord won the previous year, too, for foreign language film. So I have no idea how it made it over into the best director category for this year. So... I'm guessing that it was just because it was released in Italy in a previous eligibility window and released in the U.S. in the next eligibility window. So it would be eligible for wow. foreign language that's film. That's a loophole. And, I mean, that would hmm. be my guess, but that's so interesting. Have you seen Amar Kord? I've seen part of it. Fellini is tough for me. And no. I have a feeling you love him. <laughs> I love Fellini. <laughs> I was waiting for it to happen again. Oh, my God. Okay. (laughs) I mean, I'll go through and try again, but La Strada, eight and a half. I just, Italian neorealism filmmaking is so hard for me. Okay. Bellini, to me, his filmmaking seems effortless. I love La Dolce Vita. I love eight and a half. I don't think it was wrong to take out Spielberg, but I think it's also just totally interesting how they put Fellini in there I wonder if there were any other close calls right well I think it's interesting because in the director's branch sometimes things like this happen where they will just kind of go rogue and Mm. will nominate an auteur who is not American instead of a younger up-and-coming director so I think the best example I can think of in recent memory was when Pavel Pawlikowski was nominated for Cold War over Bradley Cooper for A Star is Born. Mm-hmm. All award season, people were talking about how they thought Bradley Cooper would scoop up Best Director nomination for A Star is Born, but then he didn't, and Pavel Pawlikowski got that spot for Cold War. What's interesting is Jaws is my favorite Spielberg film, and Amar Kord is not Fellini's best film. I prefer a lot mm-hmm. of his others, but it is, this is very textbook Academy to put Fellini into that spot. I guess yeah. maybe Spielberg was upset because at the DGA for that year, it was the best picture top five. So I'm sure he was just expecting to be in there. How old were you when you first saw Jaws? I don't have an actual year. I think this was one of those that I like remember seeing at some point, but I was too young to like remember or care about how old I was. What about you? So I saw Jaws when I was very young. It is a movie that my parents really love. And and so I saw it when I was too young to watch it. I was terrified. (laughs) And I remember we had... So at the pool where I grew up, we had like these movie nights where they would put a big projector up and pick a movie and we watched Jaws. (laughs) And at this point when I watched it again, I was in like middle school maybe. So I wasn't scared of it anymore because I'd already seen it and knew what was coming. And I remember some of the kids got so scared that they could never show Jaws at the pool again. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it definitely brought about this terror of swimming in the ocean. Yeah, people were afraid to go to the beach. I mean, there was a definite uptick in shark sightings after this movie came out, which is crazy to think how a movie can influence life itself. Yeah, so I mentioned Jaws was the summer blockbuster. It was put in 400 theaters right away, which was very different than how a lot of movies would come out at the time. They would start really small and then kind of scale up a little bit, but Jaws just was a sensation. And the book two by Peter Benchley was also a big hit. I mean, this was the movie that started summer movies, which is cool. I think what I love about Jaws, too, is that you can choose to view it as a fun summer blockbuster, or you can choose to view it as this in-depth exploration on failing local governments and institutions. I love that. It's a scathing commentary on capitalism, and I love how it's so subtle. Mm -hmm. Apart from that, for a second, I was terrified watching this. I think the editing was so deserving of a Mm -hmm. win. Yes. And the water scenes just... I know Spielberg had trouble with 
the sharks and they kept malfunctioning and he went way over budget but i think everything was done so well mm-hmm. and then going back to the political commentary I think the performances were done perfectly and that you have this mayor that you hate so much. Absolutely loathe this mayor. And it only ties back to present day again because of the time we're in. COVID, mm-hmm. we're politically supercharged and so polarizing. How did you feel about watching it this week and thinking about all of that? Yeah, it was thrilling. To be honest, it was scary and thrilling. And on its surface, you, like I said, you see it as this blockbuster. But when you dig in how sharp the commentary is, I love the scene that really hit me that I didn't expect this time is the scene when we've had a couple of shark attacks and they decide to reopen the beaches and everyone is just sitting on the sand. They're not going in the water. Everyone's just sitting there looking out. No one knows if they're going to go in. And the mayor's like, no one's getting in the water. Like, Why isn't anybody getting in the water? And then that one family decides they're going to go out. And then once we see them go out, everybody starts to go out. And that was so chilling to me of thinking about how people were responding to coronavirus and how everything that you do right now, how every action that you take can have a consequence and can influence someone else's behavior and decision. There was this really great article that I read in The Cut that is about your own personal responsibility and how we feel responsible for needing to wear masks and be good role models. And yes, that is true. But also when we view it like that as well, it takes a lot of the responsibility off the government. And that was something I saw in this scene was that it was on these people to make the decision to not go into the water and to be responsible when in fact the broader issue is that the mayor was so adamant about good business and not taking care of his community. What about you? With this scene, he forced the family to go in the water. He said, go, it's safe, it's fine. And the fact that, in essence, the government is forcing them to go back to normal Mm -hmm. is, like, saying that is the exact position we're in. Yeah. Oh, my God. (laughs) Bone chilling. I think there's a scene shortly after this. I can't remember exactly, but it's... There have been a few attacks and the mayor is still like, we need our summer dollars. This beach is staying open for the weekend, for the 4th of July, because it needs to. And then you have Pooper and the chief who directly oppose this and they are trying to take the needs of the people over the city. Mm -hmm. And the chief later gets slapped by one of the moms whose son has been eaten by a shark Because she said, you knew about this and you let us go out there. Mm -hmm. And he's being pressured. It's just like a whole slew of everything happening that I love. You hate to see it, but you love to see how well it was put together. Mm -hmm. It's amazing. Yeah, poor Mrs. Kintner. I also have to say, not to take us off the serious tone for a minute, but I was so attracted to Chief Brody. (laughs) (laughs) Which will surprise no one by now. I was going to say. No. (laughs) But I just thought, oh, wow, like I I want him to protect my town. So I also thinking about the coronavirus response and how well it pairs with Jaws. I wrote down some quotes when I was watching it that I thought could be used in this time. So the Mm -hmm. first one you kind of already hinted at, but Amity is a summer town. We need summer dollars. The other one that I laughed out loud at was when they have this kind of like town meeting talking about closing the beaches. And you Uh hear in the background this woman shouts, 24 hours is like three weeks (laughs) and I just thought indeed people right now have no concept of time and when someone says something that slightly inconveniences them they think it is so much worse than it really is no you're totally right and then the last one was I'm familiar with the fact that you're going to ignore this particular type of problem until it swims up and bites you in the ass wow yeah another it's not a favorite quote but it's my favorite moment (laughs) It's when Hooper tells them it was a tiger shark that they killed. and Oh, my God. <laughs> and the one this guy. Like, this moment <laughs> plays on a loop in my head. He goes, a what? <laughs> so two years ago on Labor Day, my sister and I saw Jaws at the Arclight like in the dome, uh-huh. which was so cool. And it was just this packed, raucous crowd. And at that part. We laughed so hard and no one else was laughing. And so 
since then, it really has just, it plays on a loop in my head. Anytime I think of just a moment that is not supposed to be funny, but is, I think of that <laughs> line reading all the time. Truly one of the best. Oh, it's so good. I also love the ending of Jaws. I think the ending, it makes you feel good, but also you're left with this little bit of horror. You know, they defeat the shark. And as they're swimming away, mm-hmm. you have this idea that, okay, everything's good. Everything's back to normal. You can choose to read it that way, or you can choose to read it as it's only going to happen again. They're going to reopen these beaches, and something bad's going to happen again. And I love that. I think it's the perfect way to end the movie. Yep. And then we get Jaws 2 a couple years later, and Jaws 3D, and then Jaws the mm-hmm. Revenge. So. so if you could give Jaws one Oscar, what would you give it? I think it's really close to picture for me. But I will give it film editing. I'm going to cheat like I usually do. And I'm going to give it to film editing and score for John Williams. It's iconic. The score overall, not even just the the two notes. Right. The whole score is amazing. It really is amazing. But I think that the editing is the standout here. I think it's really well edited. It's the fastest two-hour movie I've watched in a long time. The beginning is well-paced. It moves quickly. I think that the last 30 to 40 minutes also fly. Once you're in there, you just, you're not going anywhere. You are fully invested. I mean, it's a long final sequence where they're on the boat and they're fighting the shark. And I, yeah, it just goes so quickly, even though you're there for so long. All right. Are we moving on? Are we doing it now? (laughs) Our final one, we have Nashville. So now we have Nashville, which was directed by the late, great Robert Altman. The IMDb description here, over the course of a few hectic days, numerous interrelated people prepare for a political convention as secrets and lies are surfaced and revealed. That's kind of an apt description, but as we know, IMDb descriptions have their issues. It won one Oscar, Best Original Song, and it was nominated for five. It was also nominated for 11 Golden Globes, and to date, that is the highest number of nominations received by one mm-hmm. film. Wow. Golden Globe darling, not a darling of Nick's heart. You can start. <laughs> I don't know if I've seen an Altman before, but I think in the description of having these interrelated storylines, I was expecting something more interconnected. Magnolia. Oh. Even Pulp Fiction. I think Babel, too. A lot of Inuritus, I think, are. So I think I just expected a bigger conclusion, too. Well, I guess we'll get there. But that wasn't big enough for you? I don't think the ending should be making up for an otherwise boring film. <sighs> okay. You can get into the slow burn of everything, but I don't think the relationships that were created and I understand that there's this analytical underlying to everything but I don't think that's enough for this story that didn't really enthrall me enough to want to keep watching Pauline Kale just rolled over in her grave so hard maybe it's also the fact that I'm not a huge country music fan and that this movie was almost a yeah more than a third of this movie was music and this is like not music I wanted to hear so it was like okay now what I was going to ask you if that played a part in it for you of the genre of music, if that was more challenging because it was something you weren't that into. I mean, if we had a two hour, 40 minute, A Star is Born with Gaga and Cooper, I would 100% be down for even more music. I know they had a whole album out of it, but it was like, I could listen to more of that. And here, I don't even think the music was that good. I know Altman pushed for so many of his songs, to be nominated and they actually went back and the whole nominating process was initially done by a board of critics and then they opened it up because there was only one of his songs nominated so okay so I can talk about why I love it I think that this is a complete masterpiece I love Altman so that might be part of the reason I really love McCabe and Mrs. Miller as well what I love that he does here is that he completely rejects Mm -hmm. the type of tight narrative that you would get from a film with a lot of characters here he creates this ensemble of 24 people it's filled with faces that you might be familiar with or unfamiliar with It's filled with cameos, but no one is really stealing the show. I love Lily Tomlin, but what I like about that is it's completely captivating and it is human life at its core. He is a master at this subtle 
satire and commentary on the political moment. And I think that heading into the Reagan era, this commentary of looking specifically at the music scene in the titular city here of Nashville, seeing it almost as this unfolding diary, this realism that is so unconventional. I I found some of the scenes completely absurd. I found what he was doing to be so rare. I think that his sound design and how he would mic everything so we would get this crosstalk and picking up on different sounds. You're going to hate that I'm going to say this, but watching this film just reminded me of how there aren't that many films that feel like they're actually capturing life. And this, it was so deep and it was completely filled with this energetic and interesting vitality that I hadn't seen in a film in a really long time. Big long sigh to all of that, but... I think Lily Tomlin is the strongest character. I think part of the problem is that there are so many characters, it's kind of spread out, and we don't, I feel like Mm -hmm. we don't get to know them that well. I mean, you have Barbara, and she's this famous singer to me that comes in and causes drama, and then Lily Tomlin. She has great hair, (laughs) by the way. I love Barbara's hair. It's so beautiful. I was just thinking, like, how can I make my hair look like that? She reminds me of Shelley Duvall from The Shining, even though Shelley's in this as well. Her face does, but her whole look reminded me of Casey Musgraves. I was like, how often does Casey watch Nashville? That's a good little marriage. I like that. So I think not relating to people is a problem, but also that it was ordinary life. And I agree with what you said, but to me, I like to escape more in movies than wanting to experience everyday life. And I'm sure we could come up with like a top 10 of ordinary life movies that we love there's just no time for that yeah I think that that's all fair I think that this movie is not for everyone and I think that most people if you're watching it it might take three or four viewings and that we don't have that kind of time in normal circumstances to you know give that to a movie but this one just like whacked me over the head really and I love the realism of it I think that because these characters this is going to sound strange too but because they didn't have these fully focused fleshed out plot lines we see in a lot of movies when things happen to them to me it felt more vulnerable and like a a different kind of ache because they felt like real people and that made me more devastated and it was also just funny too I don't know I I love it a lot and the ending is so chilling I think the ending is shot well but I don't think that conclusion I kind of knew it was going there I knew something big was going to happen, but after three hours of sitting through that, and then I just, it was almost like a cop out to me. No. But I I also get that that was just another commentary on how music continues and how this city is, revolves around music. Well, not only that, but just, I think it's a commentary in a similar way to Jaws of how Americans view violence and how violence affects big events and business and politics all the time, how all those things are so intertwined in American culture. We view violence so differently than other places. It's also no surprise that Paul Thomas Anderson is a huge Altman fan, and I adore both of these guys. It was interesting to me that the people of Nashville at the time didn't think this movie was representative of actual Nashville. It's very polarizing. So I mentioned Pauline Kael rolling Mm -hmm. over in her grave. She actually has a really interesting piece of film criticism about Nashville. She saw an early cut and was this one woman show raving about Nashville. Just, it's a wild piece of film criticism. I, but I think that because of this, the film did become really polarizing and people couldn't detach her from any part of the criticism. If you have a New Yorker subscription, it's in the archives, which is where I read it. So we'll just agree to disagree on this one. That's fine. (laughs) So if you had to give it one Oscar, what would you give it? Really, my only choice is Lily Tomlin for supporting actress. Okay. What about you? She's great in it. I, I like that pick. My pick here is best director for Robert Altman. The fact that he only got an honorary makes me sad ahead of his time completely because of nashville or because of nashville yeah yeah i mean the altman-esque style that so many young directors today try to emulate is all because of this so now getting to kind of how the academy did we're gonna have our own rankings of the five nominees 
I think it's easy to say that you don't think they made the right choice, but what's your take? So I don't think they made the right choice, but I don't think there is a wrong choice. I think that here, for me, all five of these films are really outstanding. It just happens that my least favorite of the bunch is the one they picked. One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest is the most palatable for the Academy, if you're thinking about what they typically go for. Similar to what you said earlier about the themes that it touches on, it the ending, the performances, the relationship it has to its source material. I think that it makes sense why it won, especially against a three-hour Kubrick period film, a blockbuster, a Lumet film that is a little eccentric, and the sprawling epic of Nashville that was polarizing. It makes sense that it won. It just wouldn't be my choice. So apart from your listing, one flew, one both picture and director. Would you have split it instead? How would you have awarded those two? Well, to me, it wouldn't have gotten either picture or director. Okay, pretend you're an Academy member and you're doing a preferential ballot. How would you vote? Okay, so my number five is Nashville. My number five is One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. My number four is Barry. My number four is Dog Day Afternoon. Oh, this is tough. That's how good they are. My hypothesis, for me at least, stands that this is the best year for Best Picture nominees. You need to pick another year since these didn't all connect with you. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I'm not sure I agree, but they are great. My number three is... This is is so tough. It's Um, so hard. (laughs) I think my number three is dog day what's your number three i had a list but now i'm kind of rethinking it after our discussion which is hard so we know our four and five my number three is barry linden wow no 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 i can't do that (laughs) i can't i that just like i can't do that see as a voting member i would almost give it to an underdog instead of oh so you would do that way i mean so at the time nobody was surprised that one flew one like audrey hepburn announced the award and everybody was expecting that to win anyway so to me i almost don't want to give it to one flu this is so interesting my number three would be dog day this like hurts to do this are you hurting to reveal your winner are you hurting to hear my winner i mean your winner has to be nashville so i'm not really surprised i am surprised barry is in second but i think my number two would be one flu and my number one would be jaws my number two is jaws and my number one is nashville if i were voting i would almost put one flu third and do dog day first and then jaws second just to like screw everything up i feel like this is hard because they're all good movies Mm -hmm. but there's not one clear winner for me so in my preferential ballot when i think about best picture and what that award means i guess for me it's jaws and nashville feel very much like this duo i would rather rewatch jaws 10 out of 10 times i think i think that nashville is a greater achievement in some ways but i think that jaws is more rewatchable so i think slotting them one and two is how i or why i put those at the top two and put barry at number three because while i love barry linden it doesn't tell the story of the year in the way that jaws or nashville do that's why i really want to put jaws up there i, I think we could debate this for another hour yeah, we really could. so <laughs> we just need to settle how do you feel about director positioning so obviously it wasn't both picture and director went to one flew over the cuckoo's nest and foreman would you split it would you give it to someone else what would you do in my dream world nashville gets picture and kubrick gets director that would be my vote but i think if we split between my top two i would rather jaws get picture and Mm -hmm. altman get director see thinking of it like this it almost makes it a little easier i would no it doesn't I would do Jaws picture and then either Lumet or Kubrick for director. I mean, Lumet's direction is... Impeccable. That's But that's how he always is. So it's tough. But I would definitely split in a year of really strong choices. Which is why it's wild that they did the big five this year. I think that's right. my whole thing about, you know, interrogating whether or not this is the best year for best picture nominees is interesting too because it's a year where nothing split we could have had Pacino get actor and it was Jack Nicholson Dog Day did get one of the screenplays but Barry Lyndon could have got adapted I mean I think that adapting a Thackeray novel is not easy so I'm not like upset that it happened how it did but I think 
things could have been different and please more people. I agree. So we will just leave, we'll leave our own rankings and winners settled. Mm. We just won't come to an agreement. I think that we can have our, because we were so polarized on these. It was fun. 1975 though, great year in film. So we'll end with just how the Academy Awards ended their telecast with Elizabeth Taylor coming out. The teleprompters weren't working and they just told her improv everything and just go out there. And she did a really good job. And then she's like, everybody stand and sing America the Beautiful with me because it's America's bicentennial, which is just a peculiar way to end this show. Also, imagine seeing Nashville and then... Having her sing on stage? I would have been terrified that, that something would have happened. Oh my god, yeah. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us as we talked all about the Best Picture nominees from 1975. As you could tell, we thought very differently about all of them, but recommend them all for different reasons, I would say. Just check them out if you want a little piece of Oscar history. So next time on Oscar Wild, we're going to make each other watch one movie that we really like that the other hasn't seen. So... I'm so excited about this. <laughs> I feel like we could come up with a bunch of very, very different choices. But at least for this first time, I'll keep it easy. I'm going to have you watch The Prestige by Christopher Nolan. Gotta give me a Nolan. I'm very excited about this and actually surprised <laughs> that I've never seen it because I love Christian Bale and he's in it. All three of them, honestly. Christian Bale, Scarlett Johansson, and Hugh Jackman are all phenomenal. The story is great. I can't wait to hear what you think about this. I'm so excited, and I realized, too, that I'd never seen it because I always thought it was the movie The Illusionist. Did you ever see that one? I think they came out the same year. It's very hard to set them apart. When I did my, like, top 100 ranking, like, as I was growing up, it was always The Prestige slash The Illusionist because they're both really good movies, actually. I'm excited, and... I know I've been rude to Nolan, um, but I'm really excited for a new one since I can't get Tenet. And I'm going to give you, I think, the film that maybe best describes me as a person that you haven't seen, <laughs> which is a period film by Martin Scorsese starring Daniel Day-Lewis, and that is The Age of Innocence. <laughs> I know absolutely nothing about this movie, and I'm excited, but also now very, very worried after this discussion we've had. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I'm a little nervous, too. I would say it's far more palatable than Barry Lyndon for you. I think it will be. Okay. So, fingers crossed. Okay. Well, I'm looking forward to it. This will be really fun. Well, thanks for listening, everybody. We'll see you next week. Keep wearing your mask. Yes, wear your masks. We'll see you next time.